Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading is from Genesis 1, 27 to 31. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. The word of the Lord. So good morning, everyone. My name is Jenny Dunn, and I've been a member of First Pres for about nine years. My professional background is in chemical engineering, and I earned a PhD in that field from the University of Michigan because I was really interested in how to design chemical processes that consume less energy and pollute less. Uh, After graduate school, I moved to Chicago and I worked in the regional U.S. Environmental Protection Agency offices to improve regional air quality. And then I worked in environmental consulting and then I joined Argonne National Laboratory where I was able to pursue my real passion, which was looking at a systems level at different transportation technologies and trying to understand what what pros and cons they offered. I really spent a lot of time on biofuels, thinking about how the crops that we use to make biofuels are grown, how they are converted into those fuels, and how those fuels are used. Uh, I continue to work in that area today but have recently taken a new position at Northwestern University where I work to build collaborations between Argonne and Northwestern in a number of different areas, including climate change risk and resilience. 
Recently, the Public Affairs Office at the University called me up and asked if I was willing to be interviewed on WBEZ here in Chicago about the emergence of plastic straw bans. I said yes, uh, because part of my research has been looking at how to reduce waste plastic, including converting it into liquid fuels. To prepare for this interview, which I did along with a business professor from Northwestern, I dug into the background of why these bans are popping up. And I learned that particularly moving images had really prompted a public outcry about the impact waste straws have on wildlife, especially sea turtles. Photos like this one prompted near immediate action with companies like Starbucks and McDonald's planning to phase out plastic straws over the next several years, and some municipalities outright banning them. This left me wondering, why was there near universal public consensus about the need to take action to save the turtles that would result in some level of sacrifice, giving up our straws, or at least, you know, a loss of convenience on our parts, whereas there remains a really strong debate about whether climate change is real and whether we should be responsible for taking action to mitigate it and save the polar bears, for example, despite a strong body of evidence that climate change is happening and human actions affect it. Somehow, images of polar bears starving, for example, because of loss of sea ice that limits their ability to hunt for seals, just don't have the same resonance with the public as a plastic-injured sea turtle. While there are many groups advocating for public action on climate change, the consensus we seem to have leapt to about the need to take action about plastic waste is just not even really around the corner when it comes to taking action on climate change. Well, this topic came up on one of my favorite podcasts. It's called Hidden Brain, and it's hosted by Shankar Vedantam. And he recorded this podcast when he went on vacation to Alaska. He talked to some tourists looking at the Mendenhall Glacier that had receded markedly over the years. So we're going to listen to a clip from this podcast in which Shankar talks to some tourists and mentions a park ranger named John. I just think it's a shame that we are losing something pretty precious and pretty different in the world. This is Dale Singer. She and her family came to Alaska on a cruise to celebrate a couple of family birthdays. This was her second trip to Mendenhall. She came about nine years ago, but the weather was so foggy, she couldn't get a good look. She felt compelled to come back. I asked Dale why she thought the glacier was retreating. Global warming, whether we like to admit it or not, it's our fault. Or something we're doing is affecting climate change. Uh, somebody just said they went to a lecture on the ship, and the lecturer did not use the word global warming nor climate change because he didn't want to offend passengers. As I was standing next to John, one man carefully came up and listened to his account of the science of climate change. When John was done talking, the man told him that he wouldn't trust scientists as far as he could throw them. Climate change was all about politics, he said. I think Mother Earth pushes back. So I don't think we're going to destroy her because I think she'll take care of us before we take care of, of her. So uh, the tourists in this clip 
those we heard from and others he interviewed varied in their opinions about whether climate change is happening, whether humans hold any responsibility, and whether we should take action or just let Mother Nature work her way back to some sort of equilibrium, no matter how that equilibrium works out for us or for nature. Well, we recently took our own trip to Alaska. This was just a few weeks ago. And we visited the Exit Glacier near Seward, noting as we hiked to it where it used to reach in past years. The shrinking of the glacier is really striking in this figure on a sign near the glacier. And this trip only served to really increase my curiosity and, in fact, dismay regarding the general lack of meaningful action, especially in our own country, on this really critical issue. Back to the podcast, uh, Shankar and a human behavior expert discussed why it's so difficult for us to commit to action on climate change, and they draw parallels to living a life of faith. We also know that people are, are motivated by their sense of identity and their sense of belonging. And we know very well, um, not least of all in times of major conflict or war, that people are prepared to make enormous personal sacrifices from which they personally derive nothing except loss. But of course, really the motivations for why we want to act on this is that we want to defend the world that we care about and the world we love, and we want to do so for ourselves and for the people who are going to come. So, George, there obviously is one domain in life where you can see people constantly placing these sacred values above their selfish self-interest. Uh, you know, you know I'm, I'm thinking here about the many, many religions we have in the world that get people to do all kinds of things that an economist would say is not in their rational self-interest. Because these are people who are struggling with and, but, but also believe passionately in things which are, in the long term, extremely uncertain and require personal cost. Um, and yet people do so. In this clip, Shankar and a human behavior expert um, point out that we are generally really terrible at worrying about a problem that's going to occur in the future, um, especially when the consequences of taking action or not taking action are going to also arrive in the future, are pretty uncertain, and we might have to do something now to solve the problem. And this is exactly the situation with climate change. The worst consequences are in the future. And we hear from science that this could include things like more frequent and severe storms that would affect us here in Chicago. Um, there would be increased spread of disease as our favorite mosquitoes can come more farther north and have a longer season. These things are in the future. We don't really know how bad they're going to be. We just don't know. And we know that if we want to change this course of events, we might have to change our lifestyle, potentially at some cost to us, at least in the form of unfamiliarity and inconvenience. All this got me wondering, what does God have to say about a Christian's responsibility to take action on climate change? And today's scripture readings address that topic. The first scripture from Genesis discusses the idea that the earth is a gift to humankind from God. In this passage, the earth itself, green plants, provides for our food. One part of this passage I've struggled with is that God gives a commandment that we are to subdue the earth. The concept of the word subdue in Hebrew 
is that nature is very much a chaotic force that can be destructive to humans. Therefore, humans, to the best of our ability, must attempt to work with Earth's resources and protect ourselves against nature in ways that enable our survival and allow for the careful management of those critical resources. In a sense, it's getting at the idea that in the best circumstances, we create an equilibrium with the Earth, where the Earth thriving means that we are thriving. When that equilibrium is broken and we stray from the spirit of the commandments, humans suffer too much from nature, or nature suffers from humans. In a way, anthropogenic or human-caused climate change is the opposite of subduing the Earth because actions that contribute to climate change bring out nature's chaos, increase sea level rise, more frequent and severe storms, the spread of disease, and the advent of intolerable living conditions like drought that trigger migration of climate refugees. Considering the second scripture that promises a new heaven and a new earth, I personally don't think that this passage means we can skip out on being stewards of the earth, although some in the Christian faith have interpreted it that way. Rather, I think that just as with taking actions that make the last first, we need to take action to protect this gift that God gave us. Squandering it and living out of equilibrium with it will not please him. In fact, reading this scripture, I'm reminded of the concept of resurrected living that we've spoken of so often in this space. That is, that we should strive with God's help to bring about heaven today on our earth. Well, how can we do that in the context of climate change? So many people just feel overwhelmed when confronted with such a big problem. But the good news is that there are very concrete things that we can do that really would make a big difference. Recently, I read a book called Drawdown that ranks 80 different actions uh, that are most effective in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So looking at the list of strategies, the first two are really outside of our control as just individual people. Um, the first one is changing the coolants that we use in refrigeration systems. These coolants leak, and the ones we use today are very heat-trapping, 1,000 to 9,000 times more so than the most common greenhouse gas, which is carbon dioxide. So we need manufacturers to change out the refrigerants they use, either prompted by government or uh, through their own accord. The second most effective measure was increasing the amount of renewable energy that we use, either from wind or solar power. So both of these strategies are somewhat beyond our control as individuals, although if, if these issues are important to us, the one way to take action is to let our elective representatives know that these things matter. But the second two most impactful measures are well within our grasp, and they are reducing food waste and reducing consumption of meat, especially beef. Food waste, 
which constitutes about 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions caused by humans, is essentially an efficiency issue. If we have less food waste, we can grow and transport less food. Well, growing food often requires nitrogen fertilizer, and we put that fertilizer on the soil, it ends up, some of it ends up decomposing and releasing nitrous oxide. So nitrous oxide is another very potent greenhouse gas. It's 300 times roughly, uh, has 300 times the heat trapping capacity of carbon dioxide. So anything we can do to reduce emissions of nitrous oxide is a very good thing. Also, as food decays, it can release methane. And we're familiar with methane as, as natural gas. It's the same molecule. Uh, this molecule is about 25 times, 25 to 30 times more potent of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. In the developing world, food waste can be a problem because infrastructure just doesn't get food to people fast enough, and so some rots. But in the U.S., uh, it is in part due to just our oversupply of food, the fact that we don't like food that doesn't look perfect. Um, how we label our food with expired by dates uh, could definitely be improved. And we don't often do the best job of getting food um, that's extra to people who could really use it. So those things are all things that we can address. Considering the forced fourth measure, which is reducing meat consumption, between 15 and 50% of global anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions come from raising livestock. You might wonder, why is raising livestock so greenhouse gas intensive? Well, the first thing is that cows need to eat. And in fact, uh, the, about half of the corn that we grow in the US is fed to cattle. Now, you remember back when I was talking about growing crops and <clears throat> using nitrogen fertilizer. That same issue applies here. We have the degradation of the fertilizer to nitrous oxide, that really potent greenhouse gas. Also, as cows eat, they release methane. Again, that's the gas that's between 25 and 30 times as potent as carbon dioxide. So we have those two things uh, that are problematic. And then and now I'm about to use a word that probably hasn't been spoken from this pulpit before, which is the word manure. Cows also produce manure, and depending on how that manure is managed, it can emit one or both of methane uh, and nitrous oxide. So all these things taken together mean that if we had a nation of just cows, they would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitting nation uh, on our planet. So it turns out in the US we have a lot of wiggle room in terms of our diets to reduce meat consumption. Everyone's different, but on average, we consume about 90 grams of protein per day, compared to about the 50 grams that we need per day. We in the US have access to abundant plant-based food year-round that's less greenhouse gas intensive and can give us protein and many other nutrients. In fact, I'm sure many of us have heard our doctors tell us that we should derive more of our nutrition from plants. And based on the scripture we read from Genesis, God's initial intention for humans is that we eat a vegetarian diet, back to those green plants we heard about. Only in chapter 9 of Genesis does God revise his original commandments, allowing for the consumption of animal meat. 
Therefore, I think as Christians, it's really appropriate that we view plant-based food, including beans, nuts, grains, vegetables, and fruits, as our primary form of sustenance, with meat being a secondary form of nutrition in our diets. The concept of meat reduction has now made it into the mainstream through movements like Meatless Monday. Per the Earth Day organization, if we each ate one less burger a week, it would be like driving 320 miles less per year. As a country, if we opted not to eat meat or cheese one day a week, it would be uh, as though we had not driven 91 billion miles in one year. Now those are pretty tough numbers to put into context, and at this point, like, need to start making graphs for me to help kind of convey how those reductions really fit into the big picture. But the ongoing evidence has shown that more graphs and more statistics don't convince people to take action on mitigating climate change. And neither do pictures of polar bears that are suffering. Instead, we need to rely on the same motivations that we come to when we think about our faith, which involves uncertainty, future benefits, and some sacrifice on our part. I really urge you, if you're not already thinking about ways you might help to mitigate climate change, to really read up on this topic, to listen to unbiased sources about what actions will make a difference, and keep talking with your friends and family about our connection to sea turtles, which is pretty direct through the plastic waste that we generate, as opposed to polar bears, which is really an indirect connection through our actions that affect the climate. And visit the library just across the street and check out one of the great books they have on vegetarian cooking. Give a, give a meatless recipe a try and, and you might find that it addresses, it satisfies your physical hunger as well as your hunger for resurrected living in surprising ways. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.